What a privilege we have to sit before God and His Word, to hear from Him, to have our lives challenged by the truth. I am somewhat perplexed this morning at the reality of life for us as Christians today. Um, we, we have been studying through the book of Romans, and Paul has told us in Romans about the greatness and the wonder of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, and how God, by His grace, has offered a way, a way for us to be saved, saved from sin. And Paul told us in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13 that he prayed that God would, of all hope, would fill our lives with joy and, and peace in believing. In believing the reality of faith. Faith in God. Trust in what God said. Belief in who God is. It's more than just words. It's more than just thoughts. It's not some ethereal concept. It's real. It, 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 it has substance. Faith is not just something that is good for the future. Faith is something that we are to live by every moment of every day. And when we do not live by it, we are saying to God, I don't trust you. Your word is meaningless. You actually don't have control. The circumstances around me are greater than you. I believe that we are in a day and age right now in our time in this world, and particularly here in this country where God is challenging us as believers. God is testing us. And God is saying in a grand way, do you believe me? Do you actually trust me? I was thinking about Abraham. Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. God had previous to that in Genesis chapter 12 and up to that point had told Abraham to go to a land he knew not of and God had given him these grand promises and God had said, I'm going to give you a son. And there came that day after that moment of shock with Abraham and Sarai who the reality of what God had said came about and happened and Sarah gives birth to this son. And Abraham is rejoicing and so glad that God has fulfilled His promise. And Abraham is trusting God. And you get to Genesis chapter 22 and it says, Now it came about after these things. What things? All of those things that Abraham had seen in his life that God was faithful to do exactly what God said He was going to do. That God was fulfilling His very Word according to the Word that He spoke. After all of these things, 
Even, even after Abraham's doubting moments, even after Abraham's life where he, he would fear the things of men rather than living by the fear of God, even after those things, Genesis chapter 22 says, then God tested Abraham. This has been on my mind recently as we have been walking through Romans and we have been living in the circumstances in which we are living. God tested Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness and God was testing Abraham. It had been years that God had walked with Abraham and here... Abraham is being tested by God and he says to God, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Abraham, that son. You know who he is, the son that I gave you, the son of the promise, the son of the one that was according to my word. Take that, that very son, Abraham, and go. Isaac, take him and go to a land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Excuse me? We'll get to Psalm 14 here in a little bit. Excuse me? Excuse me, God. Uh, did you forget the promise? Did you forget, God, what you told me that you, you, you said that you were giving me a son, then you gave me a son? Did you forget all that history? Did, you, did, you, did somehow, somewhere in the lifetime with which you have been blessing me, you somehow missed the boat and you forgot what you told me? Take Isaac. Take Isaac. So Abraham rises early in the morning. Saddles his donkey takes two of his young men with him and Isaac, gathers up the wood, goes to the place which God tells him. Abraham's had to stir over this for three days. Three days after God had told him, Abraham's keeping this to himself. No one else knows why they're going. All he knows is God had told him this, and he goes, three days, it says, on the third day, Abraham raises his eyes, sees the place from a distance. God tells the young men, stay here. Stay with the donkey. I and my son will go. And we'll worship. And we will return to you. Abraham knew what God said. Take him and sacrifice. They worshiped God. And we will return. Abraham was trusting God. Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the moment, regardless of the confusion, regardless of what his flesh was probably telling him in the moment, regardless of all of that, Abraham was saying, God, your word doesn't make sense to me. It's confusing to me. I can only imagine what's going on in this father's heart. And yet he goes and he trusts God. His human vision was suspended by the reality of the sovereignty of God in his life. He believed God. Of course, we know. We know what happened. 
we know what happened. God supplies, supplies for him from heaven this ram caught in a thicket. But just before that, an angel of the Lord speaks from heaven. The angel of the Lord speaks from heaven to Abraham and says, Abraham, Abraham, and he says, here I am. And he says, don't stretch out your hand against the lad, verse 12. Don't do that. I mean, it's almost as if in this, and it sounds sacrilegious to even think like this, it's almost as if God's schizophrenic here. Do this, don't do that. We would only be satisfied in this entire picture because we know what God said. God was testing Abraham. God was stretching the faith of Abraham in the moment. God was using a circumstance that God had orchestrated, that God had allowed in the life of Abraham in order to stretch Abraham, in order to test Abraham. God said, I know, I know that you fear me. You see, the fear of God is a practical outworking of the faith we have in God. Every moment, every minute, every day, every waking hour that we have before God is an exercise, is a moment in which we have to willfully decide, am I going to trust God or am I not? Because there's all kinds of things thrown at us. There's all kinds of things coming our way. There's all kinds of things that are saying, hey, trust this. Hey, go this way. Hey, do this. And yet we have the Word of God. We have the authoritative truth of the Word of God that says, trust me. Do you believe me? That's why Paul said that in Romans 15. That we would have joy and peace. We would have this exuberance in who God is and in our salvation and this settledness in the moment because we believe. We have faith in what God says. We have faith in what God says because of who God is. We fear God. We don't fear men. We don't fear the things of the earth. You realize, I was saying this to my wife as we were driving here this morning, do you realize all of us are here this morning? Not, not because we woke up and somehow the day went normal and our car seemed to start and, and we had a good meal and all of these things. No, each one of us is here right now, right today, because God has been sovereign to do it. This is what I'm perplexed about. That how we as Christians so easily, so easily get to the place where we stop trusting God. I want us this morning to reflect upon that as we think about what is said here in Psalm 14. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Psalm 14, because this is indeed a sad psalm. It's a sad psalm. In fact, it's one of the saddest psalms in all of the Scriptures because it's a picture of humanity. It's a picture of humanity. It's a clear picture of the world in which we live. 
Here we are, 21st century. And here in the Scriptures, God has given us a picture of the world from every generation in perpetuity. This is a picture of what natural man thinks of himself, and even more importantly, what natural man thinks of God. And it's actually a graphic picture of unbelief. Unbelief. Last Lord's Day, we heard the Apostle Paul say those words that I spoke just a moment ago in verse 13, that God would fill every true believer with all joy and peace in believing. That as your faith is exercised and as you trust God when God is testing you, that in that process and in those moments as you are resting in God, as you are like Christ, as Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously, that you would have joy and peace. That is simply to say that our salvation, as Paul has so eloquently laid out in the book of Romans, our salvation begins with faith and it continues throughout life in faith. We do not believe in one moment and then go on living without any kind of faith to live each and every day. It isn't some sense in which we go into a room and sign on a card our fire insurance for heaven and therefore it's taken care of never to be seen again. No, that is not faith. Faith is an everyday reality, something that we live by each and every day. We must wake up each and every day with the mindset in our heart and mind, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we believe God. We believe what God said. We believe Him. We don't, we don't believe the, the pundits on the television. We don't believe the nonsense that is so flooded into our minds each and every day. Where we go is to the truth of God, and we believe God. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is over all things. And here in Psalm 14 is a graphic picture of unbelief. God wants our faith strong, beloved. God wants our faith tested. God wants our faith stretched. God wants us to be tested like He tested Abraham. And Psalm 14 is a full-color picture of the exact opposite. It's a picture of unbelief. The late Horatio Bonner, the great Scottish churchman and poet during the 19th century once said this, quote, in all unbelief, there are two things happening. A good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God, unquote. He's right. He's right. 
What he means is until, until you view yourself in light of who God is, until you view your circumstance in the reality of who God is, until God is a reality, you will never get to the place where you need to be. Whether you're saved or unsaved, if God is not the God who he describes himself to be in your mind and in your heart, you will never get to the place where you need to be and you will continue in your unbelief. I can agree with Horatio Bonner's statement, but I think we can emphasize it even with a little more emphasis by saying that a wrong view of God is always the outcome of a wrong view of self. A wrong view of God is always the outcome of a wrong view of self. Therefore, if you have a wrong view of God, the cause is not that God has somehow made a mistake. The cause is that you have a wrong view of yourself. Maybe you fear what is created rather than the Creator. This is what we find here in Psalm 14. What makes it so sad? What makes it so sad and so revealing? Now, if you're sitting here this morning saying, this sounds very familiar, you would be right. This is not the only place you hear the words of this psalm. In fact, they're stated in two other places. I read one of them this morning. Psalm 53 reads almost exactly word for word what Psalm 14 says. And then you find the Apostle Paul quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Of course, when we were studying Romans chapter 3, we talked about it being the scene. It's, it's as if there's a, a divine courtroom of God being called. And it is mankind that is on trial. It is humanity, the collective reality and the individual reality of the heart of man that's on trial. And that is what we find here in Psalm 14. This is a clear picture of our world. This is a clear picture of the day and age in which we live Humanity is on trial before God, and God is exposing every foolish detail. And so this, this is the spiritual condition of the world in which we live. And it shows that turning away from God in any way is the description of a fool. description of a fool. By the way, the word fool there carries the idea of going against all common knowledge. Going against all common knowledge, i.e. Romans 1 kind of knowledge. Right? So right at the outset, right at the beginning of this psalm, just like in Psalm 53, at the very heart of the human problem, at the very heart of the condition of humanity is a spiritual heart problem. 
This is why social change doesn't change our world. This is why there's always a new thing coming, a new social change, a new way in which to do things, a new way in which to try to modify and define morality in the world because man can't figure it out. Because man has a wrong view of himself. Because man has a wrong view of God. There's a spiritual heart problem and the reality that is utterly futile and disastrous is to live as if there is no God. And that is simply to say to live by your own trust rather than trusting in God. The same problem, the same problem, the same destruction that comes into the church, the evangelical church today the evangelical church today seems to be easily buying off on these movements that come down the road as if they are the thing from God and God is not in them at all. They're buying off on social justice and social change as if that's the way to reach humanity. And yet that is a total misunderstanding of who humanity is. It's futile. It's disastrous. And when the Christian lives without Christ-like a, a picture of Christ in their life, and when Christians live as if God isn't in charge, if God's sovereignty isn't ruling the day, is there any wonder why there's disunity? I don't know about you, but I've had the opportunity, really a civic duty, to sit on a jury trial. I would not hide it, hold it as one of the highlights of my life. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had that privilege as well. In one sense, it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenon that can be both fascinating and yet frustrating all at the same time. Why? Because as humans, we tend to skew the truth. We tend to massage the facts. We tend to change them and morph them and, and try to shine light on them in such a way that would skew them to our benefit. But God never does that. God never does that. His courtroom is not like that. In his courtroom, there are no jurors to skew the truth. I remember being on a, this trial and going back to the jury room and two of our jurists would have nothing to do with what was spoken of in the court. They had made up their mind already. Now, not according to the law, not according to what it said, but simply according to their feelings, according to the reality of what their philosophy for life should be. That's how they made their decision. It was fascinating in the courtroom and frustrating in the jury room. God doesn't do that. There are no jurors to skew the truth. And so here, here we are, Psalm 14. We enter the divine courtroom of God and we hear his assessment of mankind. There are no defense attorneys. Mark that. Mark that every single human being in the divine courtroom of God has no defense attorneys. The only one as an, who has an advocate before God is the one who believes in Jesus Christ. He is our advocate. 
He's there on our behalf. Why is there no defense attorneys before God? Because God only deals in absolute truth. Only absolute truth is being heard. There are no arguments against absolute truth. There are no explanations necessary in the courtroom of God as to why or as to how something was done. God doesn't need anyone to explain motive. God doesn't need anyone to try to show why they did something and have some kind of uh, extenuating circumstances that pulled them in one direction or another as they might explain it. God needs none of that. This is His courtroom. And while words and deeds are on trial, the actual motive behind those words and deeds is already known. God knows what we think. So there's no defense attorney necessary. Nobody there in order to explain motive. God already knows the truth. And so here in Psalm 14, humanity is brought into the courtroom of God and they are accused. The charge against them is you're completely corrupt. You're totally depraved. We've heard that term. You're completely and utterly corrupt. Now let's remember that does not mean by any stretch of our imagination that every human being is acting and acting out in the worst way they could act out. Total depravity or complete corruption does not mean that every human being exercises every bit of the reality of their total corruption. Not every person is a murderer. Not every person is a swindler. No, total depravity means that all of humanity, even the best of humanity, is totally stained with sin. Totally and completely diseased with sin. They are totally corrupt because sin contaminates the whole person. Because sin contaminates each and every reality of the whole person inside and out, then the whole of humanity is contaminated. All of society is fully contaminated with sin. It doesn't matter who we are. Even our best deeds outside of Christ are tainted by the fact that in our inner man, by our very nature, we are complete sinners. We are self-seeking in every way. So, the case is brought before the judge. And as in our own human court, the prosecutor begins with what the accused has said and what the accused has done. And so here... This is what we find in Psalm 14. Here is the charge. The fool has said in his heart, verse 1, there is no God. <clears throat> verse 1, you have the declaration. <clears throat> verse 2, you have the direction. This is the de declaration of the heart of humanity, each and every individual person. 
And the direction is given to us in the following verse. From, from the second part of the first verse and into the second. Or into the, I'm sorry, the second part of the first verse. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. That's the declaration. The direction is there is no one who does good. So, you want to have a reason? You want to contemplate the ultimate reason as to what is happening in our world today and why? There it is. There it is. Humanity as a whole has made a declaration. There is no God. There is no God. And we are seeing this played out in the actions of humanity throughout the globe. It has gone on since the time of Adam and Eve, and yet here we are in the 21st century, and it is continuing on. Man has always said he's getting better and better and better and better, and yet we see the exact opposite happening. Men is spiraling worse and worse and worse. And notice, this is the declaration of the whole of humanity, that there is no God. It is all of humanity in its collective nature in unbelief. Notice God gets very specific. He declares that the fool says there is no God. The fool. Let's not forget. The word does not mean somebody who has no rational intellect. That's not what fool means. That's what we might say today. That's what we might think. That's how the world might define fool today. Somebody who just doesn't have any rational intellect. But that's not what God's saying. God is not implying that this person has no capacity to gather facts, no capacity to understand anything about God, and therefore they're making some kind of ignorant declaration. No, no. The original word, by the way, here is the word nabal, the original Hebrew. And it means morally perverse. Morally perverse. A moral perversity. Some of you might be scratching your head and going, wow, that sounds very familiar. And that's, I read something about that somewhere in the Old Testament. Yes, you might remember that you read the name nabal in Old Testament history. He was a wealthy man. Did a lot of business around Mount Carmel. And when David was fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 25, remember David had been anointed as king by Samuel. Saul was still the king, the choice of the people. God, by his sovereignty, by his sovereign hand, hadn't allowed Saul to be removed. David wasn't about to remove him on his own. God, He was going to trust God. And he comes to the Mount Carmel area because Saul is pursuing him all over the place, trying to kill him and get rid of him. And he comes to Nabal. And he asks Nabal for some food that he might eat with he and his men. Nabal's response was, no. No, I'm not giving you food. But what did David do? David said, fine, then we'll have to just take your life. You want to go against God? We'll, we'll have to take your life. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, intercedes. 
And she gains favor with David. She stems the tide. And she says to David in 1 Samuel 25, 25, these very interesting words about her husband. She says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man. I wonder what Nabal would have done had he heard his wife talking about him like that. Don't pay attention, David, to this worthless man, Nabal, for as is his name, so he is. Nabal, it says, is his name, and folly is with him. That's what she said. In other words, he lives just as his name is. He living out the meaning of his name. He is a fool by name and a fool by nature. Interesting, in that story, a little later, he dies of fear. Dies of fear because David was going to pursue and kill him. He heard that. He got that report back. And he dies of fear. He was morally perverse by nature, and his very name is used by God as a description of every human fool by nature. Now we know, we live in the world, we know here in the 21st century, we know that we live in a world where man is very bright in his intellect. God, by His grace and through His sovereign care and providence, has allowed men to learn and grow in their knowledge, so much so that they think they don't need God anymore, and they never did need God, and they've decided that they will create from nothing what God has already created. So we know He's very bright. We have sent men to the moon. We shot a rocket recently into the sky that met up with another rocket traveling at 17,000 miles an hour around the earth. And they met up and did this dance in sky. And they're there, men floating around the earth right now. My family yesterday, we were talking about and thinking through the genetic realities of what you can find in DNA. We are an intelligent people by way of intellect, by God's grace, but by nature we are all born morally perverse. And that makes us a fool in the eyes of God. Now notice, notice that the change here against humanity is not just that man says there is no God, but rather that man is denying the revelation of God. Man isn't simply just saying there is no God by words, denying the reality of God. They're denying the revelation of God. And we need to recognize that man may not say it in words, they might not go around saying there is no God, but they are constantly saying it by how they live. And this is what's frightening for the church because sometimes we as Christians live in such a way where there is no God. We act in such a way from time to time and we are guilty of from time to time the reality in our life where we harbor opinions that are high of self and low of Him. 
high opinions of humanity and humanity's intellect and a low opinion of God and his sovereignty. A low opinion of God and who God is. Mankind believes he's got it all figured out. And yet, because of his moral perversity, his view of self blinds him to the revelation of God. Simply because he views himself in that way, he is blinded to the reality of the revelation of God. And so instead of worshiping God, he worships self. Therefore declares just what Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 say, there is no God. By the way, it's a very interesting statement. Because a statement here in the original language literally says simply no God. It's an absolute declaration, no God. And in one sense, not necessarily denying even uh, the revelation of God in the sense that it's saying there will be no God for me. You might declare a God, you might speak of a God, but no God for me. I will have no God for me. That is an atheistic attitude. An attitude which always leads to an atheistic practice. When you say no God for me, you will live in such a way in your life as if there is no God, even if you do not declare yourself to be an atheist. That's simply to say that man may not say they are an atheist with their own words, but with their lives, they are against God. And they are declaring to Him that He is not real. And beloved, this is why it's so important for us as Christians to think about our Christian life and to think about how it starts. It starts by faith, right? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. We live faith to faith to faith. And why Paul at the end of Romans chapter 15 would say, or at the middle of chapter 15 would say this, and I'm praying that the God of all hope would fill you with joy and peace in believing. You must trust God. You must believe God. You must stand with God. For to do otherwise is to live as if God does not exist. Remember how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 1, verse 18 and following, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Who do what? Who act out the way they do? No. No, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who deny the truth. They know the truth. It's in their heart. Romans 1 says, God put it there. That which is known about God is evident within them. Why? Because God made it evident to them, but they suppress it. They push it down. They want nothing to do with it. No God for me. The fool says, I've made my own ideas. 
I have my own ideas about God. I'll make my own. Don't bore me with his revelation. Don't bore me with the revelation of him. We all jokingly say, don't confuse me with the facts, but that's what the fool does. Don't confuse me with the truth. Don't distract my life with absolute truth. And so from the declaration flows this direction. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. That's the direction. Turn your back on God. Suppress the truth of God in your daily life, in in the actions of your life, in the thinking of your life. Say in your own mind and heart that God is not sovereign. Think that way. Let your life be ruled by the things of men. And you are saying in practice, I think God is small. Genesis chapter 6, God looks down on humanity, makes a declaration about their direction. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. It's almost like I'm reading a headline. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their own way on the earth. Realize the word corrupt there in Genesis chapter 6 is the same exact word being used here in Hebrews chapter 14. They are corrupt. God chose to destroy the world by a flood then. Noah and eight others had to trust God. Noah had to believe God and believe what God said to a T and believe that God was sovereign to accomplish what God had said he would do, even if that meant it was going to cost the entire earth its breath. Noah trusted God. Always people on the earth who are corrupt, living corruptly. All of us were fully corrupt without Christ. But we scratch our heads sometimes and we we look at the world and we say, but wait a minute, there are people whose behavior seems to be at least admirable by human standards. And yet, here we are in the courtroom of God and they are pronounced corrupt. They are all corrupt. Even the human goodness of man, even the human goodness on a human level is corrupt before God. Why? Because God does not grade on a scale. God does not skew the truth. Remember when I was in seminary, from time to time, grading was done on a scale in some of my classes. Oh, I love those classes. Because my poor efforts were judged against the poor efforts of the guys who were a little farther than me. And I could somehow squeeze by because it was graded on a curve, a scale. 
there were other classes that were pass or fail. There was no middle. There was no scale. There was no bell curve. You either passed or you failed. And in those classes, no comparison was made to my work. My work was evaluated on its own merits. So it is in God's courtroom. None of us, no human will ever be able to say, well, it's the way my parents raised me. No human will ever be to say, well, I was a victim of whatever, name it. I did this because I was, this happened to me. We'll never be able to say that. We'll never, that will never hold up in the courtroom of God. God doesn't grade on a curve. His standard is absolute. He only grades with pass or fail. For him, perfection is passing. Perfection. No blot, no wickedness, no piece of evil in any place. Perfection passes. Imperfection fails. Anything less than perfection, failure, done, judgment, guilty. Verse 1 says that all men have atheistic actions. All men operate in their nature as if God is not around. There is no God. And so, as in any courtroom, as the trial goes on, once the charges are presented, the witnesses are called. Okay, here's the charge. All right, let's start asking questions of the witnesses. And in God's courtroom, there's only one witness called. There's only one that's necessary, and that is simply the judge himself. And God presents his verdict. This is heaven's discovery. Heaven's, you have the declaration of man, or the declaration about man. You have the charge against him already. The declaration of the room, he's corrupt. You have his direction that he's not doing good in any way. Now you have heaven's discovery, verse 2 and 3. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. You might even say in the word understand, and see if there's any who act wisely. Any who live in such a way in which, as if God is there and they are living circumspect to God in every way. courtroom of God, the questions are asked, the charges brought. Is this what you found to be true? Here's the charge. Is this what's true of humanity? And the answer is given. They have all turned aside, verse 3, together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You notice how it hones it down. They have all, that's a large group. They have all turned aside together. That, that hones it down a little more. Together, they have become corrupt. So there's a collective reality to the whole. There is no one who does good. Well, maybe there's one. No, not even one. Not one. 
in the human court, the witness can lie. Even though they're under oath, even though they raise their hand, they can lie. And even the best witness doesn't know the motives of the person being charged. They certainly try to say that. They certainly try to determine what the motives are. But even the best testimonies don't know the motive of the heart. You don't, we don't even know our own motives sometimes. Paul said to the Corinthians, listen, you accuse me of certain things and I say I'm right, you say I'm wrong. Listen, neither by that, neither one of us are acquitted. God's the one who knows the heart. You see, it's with God, He sees it all. He's infallible. Infallible in every detail. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipresent. He is in every place all the time. He is omnipotent. He has all the power in the world. Nothing can thwart what he does. He cannot make a mistake. He cannot lie. He cannot misunderstand. He cannot be intimidated by powers that claim to be stronger than him. He knows every thought. He hears every word. Even the ones we don't speak. He hears them. He sees every deed. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing. Nothing. That means he perfectly knows the motive behind every word and every deed. Perfectly. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that, that's frightening. That's absolutely frightening. One man put it this way, when God speaks, it will expose completely every human heart. Completely. And so the discovery of heaven about the human race is that both individually and inclusively as a human race, we have turned from God. We're totally filthy, unable, without faith in Christ, unable to do any good. We're atheists by nature. And so God's standard is absolute. It is truth. It is unfailing. God knows everything. He has an absolute determination and all mankind all get a failing grade. Nobody passes. So the divine court has heard the declaration and direction of man and heaven has made the discovery of the facts. Now heaven's disposition. What is God's disposition to man then? What is his disposition to man? Well, it begins in verse 4. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? I mean, it's as if heaven is asking in an astonishing sense. Don't all these fools know? I mean, there's somewhat of a sarcastic tone even here. Don't all the people, and when it says all the workers of wickedness, don't think that, oh, well, somebody's outside that group. Remember verses 1 and 2. We're all in there. All, every aspect of humanity. We're all the workers of wickedness. Don't we know? And the outcome of what we're doing without Christ, as we eat up the people of God, as we eat bread, we don't call upon the Lord. Remember, this is David praying. 
praying to God, God speaking in the heart of David. It's astonishing. Because these words seem to be the echo of the heart of God. And they're astonishing to us as we read them because the fact is that while sin breaks the law of God, it also breaks the heart of God. You say, really? Is God saddened by the iniquity of men? Yes. Yes. Verse 4 says, Do all the workers of wickedness not know? I mean, in one sense, there's a sarcasm there, and yet in another sense, there's a sadness there of someone speaking with this heart of, Don't they know? reads in the older version of the NSB differently. It's hard to understand. You don't really pick it up there in the translation that I just read, but it really says this in some of your translations probably. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? Reminds us of the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, when he's looking over the city of Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. I wanted to gather them the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling I was there as a, as a gracious, loving mother who wanted to gather you in. I was calling to you. I was showing you. I was merciful to you. You were not taken out as you should have been. You were shown grace upon grace upon grace, and you wanted none of it. It's as if the heart of the judge here is saying, in spite of all that I have done to reveal myself to you, you still persist in thinking wrong thoughts of me. In spite of all that I have done to bring the truth to you, you still persecute those who are my instruments of grace for you. You don't call upon me. And so verse 5 and 6, the outcome is felt. They're in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Verse 5 literally says, they fear a fear. They fear a fear. That's what it says in the literal Hebrew. In other words, even though man is bold in his unbelief, even though he is bold and staunch in his rejection of God, and it's seen in both his attitude and his actions, where he's saying with both of them, no God for me, there is coming a day when he will utterly be gripped by sheer terror as he stands before a holy God. And nothing, nothing will be hidden from God's exposing light of truth. 
You can deny God today, but you will not deny God forever. Why will they be in terror? Because their folly, their foolishness will finally be revealed for what it is. Listen, we don't have to worry about the world going around and seemingly successful in their foolish ranting. We don't have to worry if if the world comes and wants to try to snuff us out. We don't have to be concerned with all of that. Why? Because one day they will stand before the God who knows all things. And they will give an answer. And the answer that they give will not satisfy a holy God. Without Christ, they will face an unrelenting hell. Why? Because God is with the righteous generation. God is with the righteous generation. The only way to be righteous is to turn from self. To get a right view of self before the right view of God and turn from yourself and embrace a holy God through Christ as Savior. To believe the gospel. That's the only way. It isn't to get a new moral way defined by men. It isn't to have a new moral standard within the community in hopes that that's going to save us and bring us out of the hole. No, it's the gospel. They need the gospel. For it, in in it is the righteousness of God. Revealed from faith to faith. But humanity is against God. Therefore, God is against humanity. And in the end, God only stands with the righteous. He's only on the side of those who are with Him. Not in words. Not in nice words that say we believe God, but we don't live as if God is sovereign in all things and, and our faith is 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 not real faith at all. We trust in ourselves. We trust in our own morality and our own definitions of morality. No. God stands with the righteous who stand in His Word. Who stand in the truth of the Scriptures. Rightly divided. Acts 9.4 The risen Christ said to Saul, Before he was saved, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember, Jesus had died. He rose again. He meets Saul in Acts chapter 9. He's going to convert Saul to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? You ever read that and go, wait a minute. I thought Paul was persecuting the church. Wasn't Paul going around getting people who claimed to follow Jesus Christ and throwing them in jail, hauling them away, persecuting the church? Isn't that what he's doing? And Jesus is here in incarnate. Jesus is here as the risen Lord, showing himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's persecuting the church. The mind and heart of God. Paul is standing against God's people, and therefore he's standing against God. Standing against God. Why? Because God stands with the righteous. God is with the righteous. See, God is declaring the same reality He was declaring to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you against the church? 
To be outside of the company of the righteous, listen, beloved, to be outside the company of the righteous in a genuine sense through knowing Jesus Christ is to be against God. Nothing could be more frightening than that. Listen, there are a whole lot of things in our world being thrown at us today that might tempt us to be fearful. A whole lot of things. It might say, oh, you should fear, you should fear, you should fear, but the realization is that one who can send your soul into eternal punishment, that him being your enemy, the one who can send your soul into eternal punishment, that should cause you more fear than anything we are facing that's being thrown at us today. None of those things should cause us to fear. So in Psalm 14, the case is over. Prosecution is rested. The reactions of the guilty have been recorded. You say, but there's one verse left here, Pastor. Seems rather out of place in this psalm. Verse 7. But I can assure you it's not out of place, and we have to thank God for it. We have to thank God for it. Why? Because it's the one fact that we all need to hear about. The fact is this, mankind, by God's grace, because God is sovereignly patient, lovingly patient, he has a suspended sentence. The sentence is there. The sentence will be carried out. The word will happen. It will come to pass. But mankind for today has a suspended sentence. Mankind has hope. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Of course, the psalmist is thinking of the time when Jesus, when the Savior will come and rescue the people, the the earthly people of Israel. But all of that speaks to the reality of Jesus Christ who already came. In the courtroom of God, God the judge who, who holds man accountable drops the unthinkable reality into the case. And God the judge quietly reminds the court that He is the salvation of men. That he, he alone has made a way in which his wrath can be appeased if you would believe upon his son. That he will not be, you will not be eternally separated from God if you will believe. He's made a way. Made a way by means of personal salvation. So if we understand this psalm correctly and it's parallel in Psalm 53 and then what Paul uses in Romans chapter 3 as we saw many months ago, then we also know that it isn't possible. It's absolutely humanly impossible for anyone to get to that place of faith and trust God by ourselves. Because we don't want God. Left to ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. Being a part of this human race, we know that we are, prior to Christ, just running with the band of humanity and saying with our lives, even if we don't say it in words, no God for me. And unless God draws us to himself out of his grace and mercy, we have no hope. 
How does he do that? He does that through Jesus Christ. By the power of the Spirit, through Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church when we were studying 1 Corinthians? For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. It's moronic. It's idiotic. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? There seems to be a lot of debaters out there today. Where are they? Where are they proclaiming that they can find their way into glory? You don't find them anywhere. Where are they? Come on, give me the answers if you got it. No, has not God made the foolish wisdom of the world? Foolish, the wisdom of the world? God made all their intellect, all their wisdom, all their supposed, we don't need God, we figured it out. All of that is moronic. Why? Because of the cross? Because since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't come to know God. See, according to how God designed it, you just can't get there on your own. You can't get there through your own intellect. You can't get there by saying, well, I finally figured out the puzzle and I put it all together and I'm the one who found God. No, you can't get there because God's wisdom said he made it such that you can't. And because of that, God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You got to say to yourself, man, that message of the cross just makes no sense to me in a human way. There's no way. And yet God says, if you believe it, I'll save you. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? You see, that's why we preach Christ. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, in other words, to anybody who's not a Jew, it's just moronic. You go to the world today and you say, listen, I got the answer for our problems. It's Jesus Christ. You know what they do? They just laugh you off or they stone you or they throw you off. They marginalize you. You got nothing to say. You're an idiot. Really? I have the truth. I have the truth. And if you believe it, guess what? We'll solve the problem. Because the problem isn't morality. The problem isn't changing it. The problem is you need Christ. You need Jesus Christ. And he's a stumbling block to the Jews. He's foolishness to you Gentiles. But to those who are called, it doesn't matter who you are, Jews, Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's the reason what our world needs. That's what they need to see in us. That's the gospel life we've been talking about. That's living and trusting to God. That's living above the temptation to fear what's going on in our world and trust God, trust His sovereign hand, trust His knowing what He's doing. You see, left to ourselves, our minds just run to complete foolishness. We easily become practical atheists. We live as if God doesn't exist. We're foolish by nature. But in Christ, in Christ, we find the wisdom of God. We follow after the wisdom of God. We follow in the footsteps of Christ, and we find in Christ the righteousness of God, which is able to save us from ourselves. That's the mandate for our lives. To know Him, 
and to live, not fearing this world, but fearing God. I pray that our church would be like that. I pray that we would not be taken captive by the foolishness that's so easily before us that we would simply just trust God. Let's pray together. Father, you are trustworthy. Your word is absolute. You are not going to erase, modify, adjust, edit, or anything to change your word. It is true. Everything will come to pass just as it has been said. You are an unchanging God. We rest in that because so much is in flux. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us live in cautious wisdom before you, trusting in who you are. Not doubting. Not doubting in word, thought, deed. Fighting against the temptations of the flesh to doubt your care over us. And Lord, protect this church. Protect it from the foolishness of our world. And if we must learn lessons, greater lessons of stretched faith, if we must learn them, then so be it, Lord. Allow us by your strength through the power of the Spirit to walk, to walk faithfully in them, regardless of what that might cost us, so that your name would not be discredited among people around us, families, friends, others, one another, but that you would be glorified and we could sit here together and say it was all because of God. It's always because of you. Always. We will not trust in horses. We will not trust in chariots. We will trust in the Lord our God. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.